Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who examines the Republican Party's culture war that targets the LGBTQ and trans community and demonizes Democrats that's inspired real-world political violence. Jamie Henn, a climate activist and director of Fossil Free Media, who assesses what he calls the good, bad, and ugly outcomes of the just-concluded COP27 climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And Laura Schleifer, co-director of the group Plant the Land Team, who talks about her work bringing vegan food to Palestinians living in Gaza, who've suffered under a 15-year-long Israeli blockade. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. U.S. intelligence officials have compiled a classified report detailing efforts of the United Arab Emirates to manipulate the American political system. The Washington Post says the report reveals the UAE's bid spanned multiple U.S. administrations, exploiting vulnerabilities in the U.S. system of governance, including reliance on campaign contributions, susceptibility to powerful lobbying firms, and lax enforcement of disclosure laws intended to guard against interference by foreign governments. According to the report, the UAE, which enjoys outsized influence in Washington, has conducted activities that closely resemble espionage. The oil-rich monarchy has spent more than $154 million on lobbyists since 2016 and spent hundreds of millions of dollars more on donations to American universities and think tanks, many of which produce policy papers with findings favorable to UAE interests. The Trump administration approved $23 billion in weapon sales to the UAE, including F-35 fighter jets, MQ-9 unmanned weaponized drones, and other munitions. One of the UAE's more brazen exploits involved the hiring of three former U.S. intelligence and military officials to help the monarchy surveil dissidents, politicians, journalists, and U.S. companies. The Gulf state also angered U.S. officials for its financing of the Wagner Group, a Russian mercenary army close to the Kremlin that has been accused of atrocities in Libya, Ukraine, and Africa. In Canada's Northwest Territories, Indigenous First Nations have campaigned to protect millions of acres of land to battle climate change and preserve Native communities. The effects of pollution and climate change are broad across the Northwest Territories, including the burning of carbon-rich peat lands, a steep decline in caribou populations, increased levels of mercury in fish, and the spread of pathogens and invasive species. The First Nations proposed Northwest Territories land conservation is more than twice the size of Yellowstone National Park. In 2016, a land deal was signed between the Canadian government and the Satu Dene people to create a 1.2 million acre area that protects the Nohani National Park, a World Heritage Site. 
Yale Environment 360 online magazine reports that overall, 12 million acres in the Northwest Territories have been set aside and another 14 million acres have been protected in the Peel River watershed. First Nations and other conservation groups pressured Canada's Supreme Court in 2017 to maintain the integrity of the boundaries of the original Peel watershed area. The perseverance and success of First Nations in conserving so much territory is remarkable, considering Canada's historic mistreatment of Indigenous people, many of whom were kicked out of their homelands in national parks. New Jersey's Casino Reinvestment Development Authority, a state agency tasked with using casino revenue for public good in Atlantic City, hasn't always followed its mandate, according to a recent investigation published by the Press of Atlantic City and ProPublica. The investigation found the agency has recently made questionable decisions to purchase affordable housing, demolish the units, and allow construction of new hotels and short-term rentals despite community opposition. For years, the Reinvestment Development Authority has acted as an arm of the casino industry by promoting tourism and eliminating services for working poor families in areas adjacent to Atlantic City's tourism district. In the process, rents have soared and living conditions have deteriorated. During the 2008 housing crisis, thousands of Atlantic City residents lost their homes to foreclosure. A Federal Reserve Bank report after the crisis blamed high rental costs and overcrowding for increased rates of homelessness. In 2011, under former Republican Governor Chris Christie, the agency began spending money to remove social services from the heart of the casino-lined tourism district, closing down an addiction treatment center and a nonprofit soup kitchen. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Last year, 10 people were killed, and three others were wounded, after an 18-year-old white supremacist shot to death black shoppers at a Buffalo, New York supermarket. Last weekend, a 22-year-old gunman entered Club Q, a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado, opened fire with his AR-15 rifle, killing five people and injuring 25 others, before patrons stopped him. On October 28th, Paul Pelosi, the husband of Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, was assaulted by a man who broke into the couple's San Francisco home and attacked him with a hammer, with the stated intention of kidnapping and harming Nancy Pelosi. Recent racist attacks in the U.S. include the 2015 murder of nine African Americans at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, the shooting death of four Asian Americans in Atlanta in 2021, the massacre of 22 Mexicans and Latinos at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas in 2019, and the murder of 11 Jewish Americans at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh that same year. In the years since Donald Trump became president, there's been a dramatic rise in political violence carried out by right-wing extremists across the U.S., 
That's included threats against sitting members of Congress, election officials, healthcare workers, and school teachers. Your reporter spoke with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who examines the Republican Party's culture war that targets the LGBTQ and trans community, blacks, immigrants, Asians, Jews, and demonizes Democrats, that's inspired real-world political violence. Yeah, unfortunately, it it meets the criteria of uh, an authoritarian party. And it behaves like an authoritarian party, starting with, um, you know, this began, of course, during Trump's presidency, this uh, submission to a cult leader. Because And the reason Trump is so dangerous is that he's not just a, a politician and also all the, you know, conflicts of interest that have started up again, but he's a cult leader. And this was manifested most obviously in his followers, and you know, January 6th was very much the outcome of cult dynamics. He called the faithful to rescue him because he was you know, in trouble and had something stolen from him, and they were going to rescue him. But the GOP submitted to a kind of authoritarian discipline. And so what's happened over the years, and it's it's accelerated uh, after he left, he set it up and it's going on its own, let's say, is that you can't have any dissent within the party to the extent where if people, uh, Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in February 2021 had to buy body armor because they were getting death threats. And you'll remember all the, some of the candidates running for office had this rhino. They were hunting uh, Eric Greitens and others. They were going to hunt down, you know, with guns renegade Republicans. So that's very much an authoritarian dynamic. And of course, demonizing the political opposition, and then you arrive at events and incidents such as attempt to assassinate Nancy Pelosi. When you are changing the political culture of your party to support autocracy, you need as many lawless and criminal people in the political class. So if you look, it's like a big renewal of the party that's going on. This is like the big picture. So who's going out? People like Liz Cheney, Adams Kingsinger, people who stand up for the rule of law. And who's coming in? Like lawless people um, or being celebrated, like Kyle Rittenhouse is being celebrated. And so you need those people who will espouse the ideals of intolerance and violence uh, to be your political class. And that's why so many of them had those ads where they were pictured with guns. And luckily, some of them lost, like Dr. Oz. But the fact that the party supports that culture, those are the qualities that it wants you to have to be its a lawmaker. That's very disturbing and it's very authoritarian. Professor Ben-Ghiat, we, we've seen a real rise in political violence across the country Of course, it was a tragic anti-LGBTQ attacks, the Pulse nightclub some years ago, as well as the horribly violent attack at the uh, gay nightclub in Colorado Springs just this past weekend. And then, of course, we saw the assault on Nancy Pelosi's apartment where a man assaulted her husband with a hammer. How should this nation respond, do you believe, to rising political violence, including, of course, the Republicans' who have an armed wing these days in militia groups, including the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and others. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the militia wing because they are a de facto paramilitary. And many people don't know that um, Trump and other GOP 
um, elites used those extremist groups as bodyguards for many years. Like all during the Trump uh, presidency, he used the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys as bodyguards. So January 6th, where they came to be of service to him and Roger Stone, et cetera, they were just doing what they'd already been doing. So some of them lost, like Mark Fincham, who was candidate for Secretary of State in Arizona, and he is a proud, self-proclaimed oath keeper. But there are others who, who won. And so rhetorical question, you know, what happens to a democracy when uh, one of the parties has extremists, these are anti-government extremists who believe that violence is the way you do politics, violence is the way you change history, and that's what January 6th was. So what happens when those people become the lawmakers? <laughs> then you get fascism, <laughs> which is what I started out studying many years ago for Italy. So that's part of the challenge. And the other is to understand how this is happening. And again, it comes from history and it's being repeated today. The way that you get people to be willing to engage in political violence, including in their communities, or to tolerate it, is that you have to get them into a kind of survivalist mentality. It goes beyond polarization. Polarization is like us versus them. We're agreeing to disagree. We, don't, we have nothing in common. Survivalism is it's me or you, and only one of us is going to survive. And so the GOP has been propagating a lot of survivalist thought, such as great replacement theory. That's the ultimate survivalist thing. It's that you are going to be extinguished. <laughs> the whites are going to be extinguished by non-whites. So you have to get people into a state of feeling there's kind of a live threat, an existential threat. And, of course, you know, back in the day, Hitler did this with the Jews. The Jews were out to get us. I'm, I'm quite concerned about that, but it's important if you know people to reach out to them, uh, people who might benefit from a conversation, Republicans, you know, you can't give up on these people. That's the other lesson, because anti-polarization and anti-political violence begins with dialogue. That was Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of the book Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Learn more about the link between GOP culture war rhetoric and violence by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Nearly 200 countries sent representatives to the United Nations COP27 International Climate Conference that concluded negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on November 20th. But the summit, in the view of many observers, did little to advance policy agreements that concretely address the current climate crisis. Although there was progress on reaching a deal on the creation of a loss and damage fund to support poor nations after they suffer climate-linked extreme weather events, there's widespread concern that governments' unwillingness to adopt more ambitious policies has left the planet on a path to ever-rising temperatures. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change this year said that to have any hope of limiting increased temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius, set in the 2015 Paris Agreement, the world cannot build any new fossil fuel infrastructure, and global carbon emissions need to be cut 43% by the year 2030. Your reporter spoke with Jamie Henn, a climate activist, strategist, and director of Fossil Free Media, a nonprofit communications lab. 
Here he assesses what he calls the good, bad, and ugly outcomes of the COP27 Egypt Climate Summit. I think it's useful to, you know, sort of follow through the good, the bad, and the ugly of what came out of COP27. Um, Let's start with the good. The good news is is that for the first time after well over a decade of uh, advocacy and organizing by um, vulnerable countries, developed developing countries and their civil society allies, um, we got what is being referred to as a loss and damage fund. Um, this is based on the idea that developing countries who played zero to no role in causing the climate crisis are bearing the brunt of its impacts. Um, countries are losing somewhat up to some of them up to 20% of their GDP year after year through climate disasters. Um, we saw in the last year terrible disasters unfold around the world, particularly in places like Pakistan, which faced devastating flooding. All of that came to bear at this COP, where developing countries really stood up and said, "Enough is enough. You know, we're not going to go forward with these negotiations unless we see the creation of a fund which will begin to compensate." countries for the incredible loss and damage that is being caused by climate change. So that fund was created. Now, it wasn't filled, um, and so there's quite a bit of more work to be done. But the very act of its creation um, is a landmark moment. Um, It is a rare occurrence in international diplomacy that we see the creation of new mechanisms like this or new really entire ways of thinking about the type of funding that needs to be be provided around the world. And so that's a real breakthrough um, that we can talk more about. But it was a recognition that we're now in an era where the climate negotiations aren't only about preventing future damage, but really grappling with the damages that are unfolding around the world. Which brings me to uh, the bad of this COP. Um, You know, this COP was really meant to try and preserve the international community's efforts to meet the target that was set in Paris of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. For reference, we're just over one degrees now, and we're already seeing the devastating impacts of climate change around the world. And scientists warn that beyond 1.5 and towards two degrees, those changes will become ever worse and, and at many places irreversible. So limiting warming to 1.5 is really critical. That target is slipping out of reach, however. Um, While it's scientifically possible to meet um, each year that goes by without meaningful new commitments to uh, accelerate the type of action that countries are taking, it becomes further and further out of reach. And so there was a hope that this COP would produce new commitments from individual countries and a new buy-in from the entire international community that we were aiming towards 1.5, and specifically that we would talk about the root cause of the climate crisis, which is the ongoing burning of fossil fuels. All of that language ended up being struck from the text at the end of the negotiations. There is no reference to phasing out fossil fuels, as many countries and advocates had hoped for. And so that target appears further out of reach, and that's going to really inform what needs to come next. And the final piece, the ugly, um, really applies to how this process went down and how it took place. Um, It was ugly on a number of different aspects. First, of course, is the Egyptian presidency. Um, Each negotiation, each COP is hosted by the host country, in this case, that country of Egypt. Um, Egypt has many things to to claim, um, you know, many great things to claim to its name. One of them is not its human rights record. Um, Egypt has cracked down on civil society over the last number of years. So before, uh, it has imprisoned human rights defenders, imprisoned environmental activists, uh, a number of whom were on hunger strike throughout this COP. And Egypt as a host country really cracked down on civil society participation throughout the talks. 
What they didn't crack down on was fossil fuel lobbyists, a record number of whom showed up at this process. And so there's real concern that the U.N. process and the international climate talks are beginning to be, I shouldn't even say beginning, but are are beginning to be maybe fully taken over by the fossil fuel industry that's always had a presence at these negotiations to the detriment of participation by civil society and by advocacy organizations. And I think we saw that in the outcome um, where, as I said, references to phasing out fossil fuels and taking measures that would begin to cut into the industry's bottom line were stricken from the text. So that's a, a long way of saying it was a complicated process. There were good aspects that we should celebrate. There were bad aspects that are true failings of our international community. Um, and we really need to take a close eye to how this process functions going forward if we want to see the type of progress that we need. That was Jamie Henn, a climate activist, strategist, and director of Fossil Free Media, a nonprofit communications lab. Find more analysis and commentary on the outcome of the COP27 Climate Summit by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. During the week of Thanksgiving, and Indigenous Peoples' National Day of Mourning, we focus on Gaza, in the Palestinian territories, another place once colonized and still controlled by outsiders on stolen Indigenous land. Gaza's 1.8 million people are often described as living in the world's biggest open-air prison because they have no freedom of movement, as all land, sea, and air corridors are under Israeli control. Conditions are dire for most people living in Gaza, with severe daily shortages of food, clean water, medicine, and electricity. U.S.-based activist Laura Schleifer is co-founder and co-director of the group Plant the Land Team. Her co-director, Anas Arafat, lives in Gaza and works with volunteers to grow plant-based food for free distribution to their neighbors. They also distribute other essential items, including blankets and heaters. In conversation with Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, she talks about the typical Palestinian diet and the aid distribution her team has been doing in Gaza over the past five years. The interesting thing, of course, about the traditional Palestinian diet is that it is almost entirely vegan. So it wasn't really that much of a leap uh, because, you know, when you think about like what Palestinians typically eat, I mean, it's hummus, it's baba ganoush, you know, it's falafel, it's tabbouleh, it's sesame tahina, it's all made from plants. So it was very easy to kind of like, you know, to veganize it because, you know, the olives, the eggplants, the chickpeas, the sesame, you know, um, all the all the stuff that they typically eat overwhelmingly is already vegan. So uh, the foods that they're planting, it's the foods that they would traditionally eat. It's, you know, a lot of it is um, olive trees. Olive trees are a really big deal there. To a Palestinian family, an olive tree is like having another child. Like they value the olive trees so much there. 
that it's such a huge gift and such a huge help to have an olive tree. So they plant a lot of olive trees and lemon trees and oranges and all kinds of fruits and vegetables and, you know, but it's totally uh, indigenous. It's not anything that would come from outside that land. How many families benefit from the work that you're doing, that your group is doing? Yeah, actually quite large number. Um, I know Anas has said it's in the thousands, like we'll do a campaign and then it can be several hundred families that benefit out of it if it's a big campaign. So we have helped quite a few families. When they plant the land, sometimes it's publicly held lands and sometimes it's for farmers. So if it's a farmer, they will provide the farmer with tools and seeds, you know, help with the labor. But then sometimes it's like just public lands that aren't actually owned by anyone. This is very direct aid to Palestine. You can't get more direct. It 100% of every penny that we raise goes directly to Gaza. It is local Gazan people that are organizing this. Um, you know, they use 100% of the proceeds to directly help their neighbors. So, you know, there's no um, outside control. There's no hierarchical control. Um, you know, it is totally Palestinian self-organizing, no overhead. You know, it's a great way to help Palestinians directly in Gaza. It's difficult to get aid into Gaza because of the sanctions, because of the Israeli sanctions. And the U.S. is backing Israel. So, you know, that makes it difficult to get aid into Gaza, but they have managed to do it in spite of that. Of course, for anybody who doesn't know the situation, Israel is blocking Gaza in what is considered to be the world's biggest open air concentration camp, in a sense, because they are blocking all the entrances and exits out of Gaza. And, you know, they can't get food in there and they can't get medicine and they can't get fuel and electricity and all the things that they need them, you know, the basic supplies. And then of course being bombed, you know, sporadically and people can't escape, even if they want to, they can't leave Gaza, they're blocked by the Israelis. So uh, that's why we need to get this aid directly to Gaza. And of course, another way that people can really support Gaza is to participate in the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And that is to put international pressure on Israel to end their control and occupation of the Palestinian territories. So that is something that people should definitely get involved with. Um, so they can find out information about that by going to www.bdsmovement.net. That was Laura Schleifer, co-founder and co-director of Plant the Land Team. Learn more about the group's work and the impact of Israel's 15-year blockade of Gaza by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>